Thanks for listening to the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry, here to help educate, motivate, and put you on the right path to take control of your health through weekly discussions on topics in the medical field, public health arena, and in your community. And now your host, Dr. Barry. And welcome to another episode of the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry. I am your host, Dr. Barry Peer, your favorite board certified internist, founder of drbarrypeer.com, as well as a CEO of Pierre Medical Consulting, helping you empower yourself for better health with the number one podcast for patient advocacy, affirmation, and education. This week, we bring you a special guest, Dr. Cindy Duke, who is America's only dual fertility expert, as well as virologist. She is highly accomplished, training at John Hopkins in Yale. She's a scientist. She's an entrepreneur, blogger, podcaster, motivational speaker, philanthropist, content creator, and more importantly, influencer who speaks and writes about issues as they relate to life, health, fertility, female empowerment, and international medicine. Guys, I know that sounds like a mouthful, but when I tell you Dr. Duke is such an amazing person, kind and warm-hearted, and we're going to talk about her journey, like what it was like to become an MD-PhD candidate and study in two fields, which she probably never thought would kind of intertwine, at least in the beginning, but because of COVID and because of just her practice of care and fertility specialty, she's had to kind of marry the two. More importantly, she's got out on social media and really educated the community on what it really means, right, to be fully equipped with all the information to battle COVID-19 while doing your quote unquote day job. So like always, remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a five star review and make sure you send this out to five of your friends and family to listen to hear what Dr. Duke has to tell us today. I am very fortunate enough to say that I'm actually talking to a special guest that is like trumping me in the amount of side gigs uh, that she has in comparison to her quote unquote day job, right? Like it's like it makes like and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it any justice. So let me just read a quick little bio so we are fully aware of what's going on and who we are talking to. So I have Dr. Cindy M. Duke, America's only du- dual fertility and expert uh, and virologist. She is highly accomplished John Hopkins and Yale trained physician, scientist, entrepreneur, blogger, podcaster, motivational speaker, philanthropist, content creator, and influencer who speaks and writes about issues as they relate to life, health, fertility, female empowerment, and international telemedicine. Dr. Cindy, thank you for joining the the, the show, the podcast. Um, Again, I'm I'm, I'm excited, uh, you know, just to, you know, just to talk to you. And I appreciate you for taking time out. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dr. Pierre. And I'm so excited. I'm, I, I don't know which of us is more excited, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I gave a little bit of a, you know, a breakdown of who Dr. Cindy is. But again, I got people who like to skip the intro. They like to kind of get really nitty gritty. Who really is Dr. Cindy? And, and right? how did we get to where we are at today? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I grew up in the Caribbean. So, you know, the joke is when you grow up in the Caribbean, you're just used to seeing everybody doing multiple things, right? You know, it, there's no such thing as people just do one job, come home and that's it. So right. Are, <laughs> you're always doing multiple things. So I grew up with a mother, a single mom who is, I call,
call a serial entrepreneur. My mom, while working her day job for the government as an accountant or what they call a checker, she also, I'm sorry about that. She also um, had a hair salon. She's a licensed cosmetologist who trained in the Ooh, U.S. I, she had I a love restaurant. that. Yes. And she had a boutique, you know, and so always busy, always busy. So I just never knew or thought of anything but being entrepreneurial one, using your talents, you know, to help make sure your family's cared for and, you know, being multi-talented. So we uh, moved to the U.S. when I was 17, going on 18. I went to college in New York City, went to school and grad school because I quickly realized, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor long before we moved to the U.S., but I got to college and realized I wanted to be a physician and a scientist. I love asking questions, love, you know, designing experiments to answer questions and hypotheses. So I applied into the MD PhD program uh, when I applied to medical school and ultimately started medical school in upstate New York, which is Rochester, New York. So I was there for eight years where I earned my medical degree. <laughs> Masters I was, was going to say, because oh. anytime I hear my MD, PhD uh, students, I'm like, wow. I gotta yes. <laughs> yeah. I pretty much spent all of my twenties in school. Right. So I started college just around 18, um, started medical school at 21, going on 22, graduated at 30. And um, during the course of medical school, realized a few things. So I entered medical school actually thinking I was going to be a pathologist. I was pretty sure because that was the first ever doctor I'd ever met that was a Black woman. She was a Black pathologist um, who also did research. So, you know, representation really matters. For me, Having met her, first I met her when I was eight, and then I met her again when I was 13, when she came back from finishing her subspecialty training there in the islands. So she was the first woman doctor I'd ever met and the first Black woman doctor for sure. And so I always thought I was going to be just like her. So I went to medical school anticipating that I was going to be a pathologist and then quickly realized a few things about myself. In so much as I love pathology and the quest for the answer, I really like talking to patients. Mm, okay. <laughs> I really All right. like that <laughs> and so quickly I, I learned from anatomy and so forth that maybe path isn't exactly where I'm going to go. And so um, in my second year of medical school, I was actually assigned to go to work at an OB-GYN clinic, but the person I was assigned to work with had an emergency maternity situation going on with herself. So they reassigned me to the fertility clinic. And so serendipity, I ended up at the fertility clinic as a second year medical student. So year two out of my eight-year program, and I fell in love. I was like, this is everything. They do lab stuff. They do surgeries. They look at the hormonal and the chemistry side of being a human, which I was a biochemistry major undergrad and loved that side of human hormones and labs and all that stuff. And also I realized I was very, very keenly interested in how humans begin. How do we get here? You know, how do you get people pregnant and so forth? And so um, I, my, that was my first exposure and interest into fertility medicine. I went off to grad school, worked on my PhD in microbiology and immunology, where I really spent all that time learning how to manipulate viruses and how to use them to elicit an immune response and deliver genes. I know, fun stuff. I, I, I was definitely going to ask, because I was like... Sorry to break your concentration. I know you were probably knee deep into today's episode, but do not forget 
check out our Lunch and Learn community store, shop.drbarrypierre.com. Remember to use the code EMPOWER10 and make sure you are leaving us a five-star review, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Like how, how did, how did we, how did we get to virology? Like out of all yeah. of the, it, like, cause mm-hmm. it's interesting. I mean, like I, I, I remember taking that little sliver during, during, <laughs> during med school, but like yes. to go in, I was like, how'd she get to virology? What was that? Like yeah. that, that turn, that corner said like, oh, I'm going in this direction here. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, it was two big things. So the first was, you know, as an MD, PhD student, one, you get to choose what area you're interested in. So I was very interested in microbiology and immunology, interested in biochemistry. And so you actually get to rotate through laboratories before you decide on which lab you're going to do your PhD in. And just my luck, one of the really cool things is as a first year med student in one of our group settings on the med school side. Um, I actually was in a group where we had a facilitator who was Dr. Dewhurst, who turned out to be my PhD advisor. And we were doing a group session on HIV and really just, you, you know, you're usually given, it's what we call PBL, problem learn, problem-based learning, right? And our case happened to be, you know, they usually give you this case where the person presents, they'll give you three lines the first day, and you start figuring out how to work your way through the clinical investigative process. So these three lines, what are you thinking? What other information would you want to know? Send each other home with homework. And then tomorrow they'll give you a little bit more information and you build on that case for a week. So he was our facilitator. Oh, okay. That. Nice. It's a really Yeah, we, yeah, we definitely had a different, we definitely, we were, yeah. we were like, Midterm test, midterm test, midterm test. Yeah, no, we had tests too, but that was how they taught us the clinical decision-making process, right? You had to work your way through cases. And so during the course of doing that, um, he was our leader for our group, which meant we were medical students, but here we were with a PhD virologist running our particular group. (laughs) And, you know, it's just any question I asked him, he, he got excited and would answer. And I was very interested, not just in the HIV, but the public health side of HIV. And I kept asking, well, how come people haven't done this? And he's like, you seem to like viruses a lot. And I was like, yeah, doesn't everybody? <laughs> and so he was like, you know, um, if you ever need to talk, just come if you have any questions. And yeah, so that's what I did. I set up a meeting with him to find out more about the research in his lab. And um, we started talking. I told him my interests. And he said, you know, I think there's a project you can work on. You can certainly apply for your own grant funding, which I did. So I rotated in his lab first. And then I rotated in an immunology lab and I rotated in a biochemistry lab. And then by the end of that, by the end of my second year of med school, I did my step one of the USMLEs and decided, you know what, that's the lab for me. So that's the lab I chose. And so I was there for four and a half years in the lab, just working. Um, My PhD project was actually the optimization of HIV immunogen design for delivery Mm. using a herpes simplex virus type one base um, vector, um, which meant along the way to compare, I created adenovirus vectors. I created vectors using it. Now, for those who are wondering, adenovirus vectors, yeah, the same vectors that now we see yes, in yes. the state vaccine. <laughs> um, we worked on DNA um, constructs, which were many of them were precursors to now mRNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so a lot of that's when just really assessing how the immune response would um, look like if you use these different things to either target different genes or target the immune system. Um, And so during that time, I also continued going to clinics once a week. So I spent of those four years, half of my four years in the lab, I would go to the infectious disease clinic every Wednesday to um, just go to the HIV clinic, which was primarily HIV, but you'd see other infectious disease stuff. And then also I spent a lot of time on the oncology service because I was very interested in pediatric oncology, given that there was a lot of interest there in terms of how you could use genes, including virally delivered genes, viral vector Um, delivery to do therapeutics. So a lot of that now, what I love is here we are 15 years later. You know, that was going to be my follow-up question. Yeah. That was like, like, did you, could, well, obviously I'm pretty good imagine, but like, could you imagine it coming to a head like, like your your specialties and and, and for, for the lunch learning community who, who may not know, how do you how do you become a fertility specialist? What is the yeah. the training so, tracks? So for fertility specialty, because really what I'm describing here are two parallel paths that have now merged to make me the first. Right. Because there's no when I say America's only, it's not just me deciding, yeah, I'm going to call it that there really <laughs> isn't <laughs> another fertility <laughs> doctor in this country who is. Um, a virologist. And so, yeah, so I I did those four and a half years, finished my PhD. Along the way, you get a master's degree. Um, What's interesting about that is it means you start medical school with one class, you watch them graduate, you watch other classes come in, start, graduate, and you're still there, you know? And so by the time I graduated, I graduated with a medical school class that started four years after I started medical school. Wow. Uh, which means, you know, you start off. So you don't know any of them because they're all. I don't know any of them for the most part. And I'm also now one of the older members of the med school class, having started class originally with people who were my age. I was young. I was 21, you know, when I started med school. And now here I am 30 watching 26 year olds and 25 year olds graduating with me. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there were a lot of pluses to the process. Yes, I spent all of my 20s in grad school, but there's a lot of maturity that came with that. A lot of critical thinking skills that came with that. And also a lot of confidence that built with that. Um, So, like I said, I was initially um, introduced to the fertility clinic as a second year med student. So when I was finished with my PhD, because you don't start your third year of med school until you finished your grad school. So just imagine that you do second year of med school and then you go off to the lab for however long it takes before you can come back and do your clerkships. So I came back to my clerkships at the end of my sixth, going into my seventh year of med school. Um, And so I came back knowing I was very interested in women's health and fertility and specifically meaning I would have to do OBGYN and then a fellowship in reproductive endocrine and fertility. And so I started out um, my clerkships with neurology and psychiatry. Actually, no, I made that up. I started out with family medicine because I decided that might be the best way to re-immerse myself into primary. This kind of primary care care setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I figured it was because we don't have a required family medicine clerkship, but I chose to do an elective first because I wanted that, you know, family medicine 
where I went to medical school is they actually, the whole residency was based over at one of the community hospitals. So not the main campus hospital for the med school, but at a community hospital. But what was cool about that is they literally had a family medicine in-service and outpatient service as well, which is nice. So it meant for my elective, I got to spend time in the hospital and also in the clinic, which was a great reminder of this is how it works in the clinical side. Cause I just spent four and a half years (laughs) in the lab. right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and here's the real kicker, Dr. Pierre. So I came back and my chief resident was actually one of my med school classmates. (laughs) So And that's the thing. So here I am, a third-year med student, and as I start going through my clerkships, a lot of either my chief residents and even my attending on some of my rotations were my original med school. Oh, that is funny. Isn't that freaky? Yeah. So wow. Um, And at first, I was very intimidated because I thought, you know, I don't remember some of this stuff and so forth. But it actually worked out to be really good because. They all, it turns out, I guess people liked me. So they were all like, oh, Cindy, oh my God. It was so happy to see me, you know. Yeah, you'd be on rounds and when they're like the gunners who like won't let you talk and the attendant would be like, I want to hear what Cindy has to say. And people are like, why does the attending choose you? I'm like, I know the attending when we were back in first year med school. Way back, like we got a relationship here. This isn't just like spur of the moment here. They know me. Mm -hmm. And so I always say that to people who are in the MD PhD route, because there is really that trepidation, right? You know, because just, I remember being second year in grad school, still working on getting my master's and there were my med school classmates graduating with their MDs, going off to lives, knowing where they're going to be, you know, and I I didn't even know when I would have my PhD. So now here I am. And so, yeah, so I went through that, um, applied into residency, um, ultimately chose to go to Johns Hopkins Hospital and they liked me too. So I matched there. Um, So I did my residency for four years in Baltimore. And then um, to be a fertility doctor, you have to do subspecialty training as well. So then you apply into a three-year fellowship program. So really what I'm saying is after college, I did eight years in med school. slash. I was was counting. I was counting. I was like four years in residency and then three years in fellowship. And if you add college, then that's 21 years of training after high school before I was Mm. a fully fledged practicing doctor and scientist. I love that. And the reason why is because I think a lot of times, especially in, we, we do it all the time when we're, when we're talking to even to our pre-med folks, yes. right? And we're, we're telling them like, oh, you know, you come here. And the first thing they say is like, how long does it take to be a doctor? How long? And they're always worried about this time aspect. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you're, when you're, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it probably doesn't feel like while you're in it, but like when you look back, like, like that time, like kind of fly, you look up, right? And then you're, you're graduating. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the, the time just moves. And I always that's what I always try to encourage to my pre-meds. Like, like, don't look at the time. Like you're going to be 30, 35. You're going to be that age anyways. Mm-hmm. So like, why not be this. that age doing what you love? Doing what you love. And I was scared. I won't lie, because, you know, one is so there I was, for example, I remember I had what I call an existential moment at turning 26. And I, I didn't expect it. Right. But it was I was turning 26. And it just so happened that my med school class had just graduated. And I think it hit me. The question was, well, how much longer are you going to be here? I had also run into another MD, PhD student who had been there for going on his 10th year. 
And so I think oh, wow. that that had hit me, right? It was like, oh my God, you you may not be out in eight years. You might be here watching five more classes come and go before you're done. And so I remember I tell people it's weird. I didn't celebrate my 26th birthday. I didn't want to because I was so just disturbed by the idea of what's going to happen with the rest of my 20s. That lasted for about two months where I was just like, what am I going to do? I kept writing all these plans about what I'm going to do and so forth. And then I got over it. And the next four years went by without much issue. Um, I really got into the PhD work. You know, I got to travel the world to present some of my data. So I went okay. to Paris. Uh-huh. I went to Switzerland, um, Germany, Montreal, presenting my research. Met Dr. Fauci while I was still a first year. Um, oh, nice. Uh, grad student. Yeah, I met my first encounter with Dr. Fauci was in 2003, um, you know, because I I was on an NIAID grant, which is the um, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. I was on one of their grants. And so there I was going to a big conference in DC and in walks superstar, Dr. Fauci, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, it's Dr. Fauci. So it's just so amazing to watch even his career where I already thought he was meteoric in right. 2003. I, I tell, I tell people all the time, like, you know, the way, the way they used to talk about him and I, and obviously I'm an internist. Yes. So like Harrison, Harrison. right. Yes. Is like, so like, and when, when people would talk about him, I'm like, I don't know if y'all know who like that guy is. Exactly. Like, like, like he, he's, 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 he's our person. Yeah. Like, he, like, like the way y'all talking about him, like he's some regular Joe Blow, like, no, 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 no. Like, that's the thing. I was like, you guys don't understand. He is the doctor's doctor and he is the scientist's doctor. And if you talk to the virologists and the immunologists, but especially the virologists, of course, we know who Tony Fauci is. We know him. We trust him. And um, so I think that was one of you asked, you know, could I have predicted 2020, 2021? Mm. I wouldn't have predicted the pandemic, but I'll tell you why. Right. It's not because I didn't think a pandemic could happen, but I really thought that there was a lot put in place to prepare for that, because Mm. a big part of the time spent for me in grad school is there we were in a post 9-11 world. And to set the stage for people, I started medical school in 2001. I went to college in New York City. We I started medical school on August 13. 2001. 9-11 happened barely a month later. Wow. Right. And two days after that was our first big final that they said we couldn't miss. So that's just how much 9-11, you know, it's still, it's etched in my memory. I still remember what we were in our lectures and we got these pages that said, you have to come to the main auditorium right now. I remember walking into the auditorium and asking myself, what kind of movie are they showing us? Because we walked in just at the moment where the second plane was about to hit the tower. Right. And so what that meant was by the time I got to grad school, two years later, as a virologist, bioterrorism and biowarfare was a big thing. I was going to ask, I was going to ask, was that like 
it was a big thing, right? Mm. Everybody had to be taught. Every conference we went to, we discussed these things. We talked about the ethics of biological weaponry, especially not just the anthrax that people were hearing about in the news, but really how viruses could become emerging threats, including what was happening as we were encroaching on more and more natural uh, barriers when it comes for animals, right? Because as human beings, we have been encroaching into the natural habitat of animals, which means we're going to be exposed to new infectious agents. And so with that also came, you know, President Bush had all the different plans and the response plans, et cetera. Then followed uh, President Obama in 2008, the briefings. We, you know, we also got the visits from the um, FBI to tell us about anti-vaxxers and how to stay safe if you're a lab that's doing research on vaccines and if you're doing research that involves animals. Mm -hmm. So I really, I think for me, I thought that we had a lot of things in place that was expected to handle a crisis like that. I thought we had systems in place across the world where countries will talk to each other. Um, I never anticipated, of course, what would happen with the particular regime that was in power (laughs) when the pandemic started. And so discovering one, you end up with a president who doesn't even believe, who actively says that the CDC isn't to be trusted, the World Health Organization isn't to be trusted, Tony Fauci isn't to be trusted, you know. So we had this active undermining of all the systems. And then we heard also about the fact that they weren't really renewing any of the pandemic response and the crisis response and so forth. Um, So, yeah, I think that's what shocked me the most. So it's not that a pandemic couldn't happen, but the the bigger question was the lack of urgency that Mm. people put on what we were seeing coming out. You know, you feel like the the preparation was there, but unfortunately, because of that regime, the work had been laid. And Mm. if you talk to policy experts and bioterrorism and biosafety, because this isn't bioterrorism, I want to be clear, because I know there are people out there who think the virus was made. That's not what I'm saying. But part of the policies to prepare for threats that could lead to pandemic level infections involve preparing how are you going to notify the public? How are you going to tell the public about safety? How are you going to get the messaging out? How are we going to make sure we have the right amount of supplies? So, you know, discovering that our ventilators, we didn't have enough and we didn't have a backup system, discovering that our national supply of N95 masks had expired and this had expired and that had expired, really demonstrated that even when people put things in place, if you don't have that continuity, right? And we talk about that in medicine, you know, if we don't have good handoff, if we don't have good sign out, if we don't have good continuity, (laughs) things go bad. Yep. And that's what happened to us as a nation. We became the patients as a result of not so great sign off and not so great oversight. Now as a, as a, and especially because you, you kind of mentioned how your worlds are kind of, were kind of parallel, right? Fertility yeah. kind of specialists here, virologists here. And then here comes this pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. That really forces. And, and the reason why in uh lunch learning community, like I, I first met Dr. Cindy uh, in Clubhouse. Yes. And like, first of all, like 
just how amazing and how knowledgeable she was, I was like, oh, yeah, we got to see if we can get her on the show, right? I, I, th- I said, literally, that's, but that's what I always do when, I, when I'm around smart people. You mean like, amazing oh, people, right. yeah. <laughs> but, but like, like, I can see how you continuously had to blend like your expertise and fertility and then your expertise in virology because it, it unfortunately it came to question, right? right. Like people kept right. asking like, well, but if I'm doing this, can I do this? And can the virus, right. like you, you kept mm-hmm. having to like answer and then I, which we loved, right? You kept having to be kind of that foremost expert because again, I tell people all the time, I went to internal medicine because I did not want to have to deal with women's health and children, right? That was one of the yes. kind of reasons why I went this direction. And like women's health is already kind of a blur to me a lot. And obviously this virology, again, I, I, I did well in microbiology, but again, I'm not in the So yeah. like seeing you being able to kind of stand on both uh, pinnacles and really expand the knowledge and tie it together with, I think was something that like drove, like really, really kind of drove me to like, okay, yeah, no, she, she's, she, she's the woman. She knows yeah. exactly what she what she's talking about here. And you know, what's interesting there is that's why I describe them as parallel, because before the pandemic, people would act like they were, it was impossible that you could do both. Right. <laughs> Which meant as I went through my OBGYN world and training people, they were like, oh, you have a PhD. That's cool. But they never thought I could apply it, which I was always like, everything about our world is everything I studied in my PhD. The immunology of pregnancy, the immunology of how does mm-hmm. a body not reject a pregnancy growing in it as half proteins that doesn't belong to it, right? Ooh, um, nice. How, you know, how do we trigger genes to turn on, turn off? All that stuff is what actually my world of microbiology, immunology, specifically viruses and eliciting responses. That's my whole goal was doing that. Um <laughs> But it was impossible to tell a lot of people within the world of OBGYN that, hey, my PhD is directly relevant. Now, I'd give some people credit. There were a handful of people I met who saw and were like, whoa, I think that's amazing. You're like on the frontier of our field. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, if I went to the people who are the virologists, microbiologists, immunologists, they're like, well, why didn't you go into infectious diseases? Why didn't you do more pediatrics or or you know, internal medicine and a subspecialty. Oh, be kind. But I always knew there was a special place. One, because I'm an immigrant and I distinctly Mm. remember the role viruses played in our lives. I distinctly from my grad school time recognize that a lot of viruses that we don't talk about have major impacts on how pregnancies survive, their ability to actually yield a baby. And ultimately, of course, the way vaccines work, especially when it comes to that special population in pregnancy. And so, yeah, the pandemic news comes out and I have friends who are like, oh, this is all scary because I've never gone around telling people I'm a virologist. Right. Only those who are close (laughs) to me remember Cindy's a virologist. And so I remember, you know, going. So it never really kind of came up like, you know, especially with your just general patient care. Like it was, oh, but you know what I do this right as well. Yeah, it came up for my patients. Yes. Uh But even the patients are like, oh, she has a PhD in microbiology. But I don't think, because here's the thing, right? If you think about it, how many times have you thought of a virologist pre-pandemic? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
people just didn't think of, oh, virologists play a role. Most people, if we're honest, didn't know virology existed, right? Mm-hmm. And so, because that was one of the first things I saw is I saw some people coming forth and talking, but they're actually, they're geneticists. They, maybe they studied microbiology, which is bacteria, but not virology. We're actually a very small subset mm-hmm. of microbiologists and immunologists who are actually virology trained and focused and tracked. So, you know, I went live on Facebook and there were over 700 people watching and comments and it went, it went viral over a hundred thousand people sharing it and stuff. And this is going to crack you up, Dr. Barry. So I got a call from my mom and my mom called and she said, hallelujah. And I'm like, what's wrong, mom? And she's like, all these years, I was wondering why you did the PhD. Oh, that is too funny. <laughs> she said, and now I know why. She said, now I get it. She's like, thank you, God. You've given me a, a virologist in my family. <laughs> oh, I love it. What's hilarious about all this? My mom came to my graduation. She had the flag. She was proud. She took pictures with everybody. But apparently for well over 10 years, she actively had questions in her head over 12 years, actually, yes. about What is is she doing this for? She's going to be a doctor. Why does she need this PhD in this virology thing? That that is, that's, that's hilarious. That's it. And I, and I can see it because uh, you're so right. The, the, the amount of people who knew, you know, what virology or really understood the importance of it before, Mm -hmm. you know, COVID-19 was, was a very small number. Mm -hmm. And, so, so here you have, you have this, you have this virus that's now pandemic level and mm-hmm. here you are having to answer, like still having to have the one hat on you're the fertility specialist and answering questions on fertility and mm-hmm. lack thereof. And now it's like, all right, I got this virus here. What can this virus do? Right. Yeah. To, cause, cause we remember, and you, especially we, we were both on those little club clubhouse rooms when people would question, you know, whether, you know, COVID could affect fertility, could it not affect yeah. fertility, where yeah. the, the treatment could affect fertility, mm-hmm. not affect mm-hmm. fertility. Like how, how are you, how, how did you juggle, you know, yeah. you know, both of those worlds, especially with your patients and patient mm-hmm. care and the people you kind of come in contact with. Yeah, I'm really glad that I was able to be that person that could come out and say, no, that's a theory, that's hypothetical. No, this class of viruses wouldn't do that because the disinformation you remember was, it still is, but then yes. especially, right? Because who could who could disprove it, you know? Because again, people had never heard of a virologist, far more virologists <laughs> who acutely understood hormones and pregnancy and periods and how eggs and sperm come together. That was unheard of. And so, yeah, for me, it was, I felt a responsibility to make sure that people got accurate information, a responsibility to make sure that the targeted acts of stoking fear using Mm. disinformation didn't actually work because what we saw was it was intended to scare people, right? If somebody tells you that your fertility is permanently going to be damaged by an mRNA vaccine, it doesn't matter how afraid you are of COVID, you're going to say, well, I'm not risking my fertility. And so I needed to come forth and really present the evidence and say, absolutely not. This is not what's going to happen. But by the way, this is just how bad COVID is, by the way, if you get COVID. And I think that was something that, you know, I had learned 
to become this health communicator years ago and continuing through the training. Like I said, even when I was in the science side, basic science bench side, I would go to the clinic once a week to see and learn how to communicate and how to correlate clinical with what I was doing in the lab Mm -hmm. and so forth. And so it was a culmination of 20 plus years. And I like to explain that to people too, because I think sometimes, you know, Dr. Barry, we come across people who they don't know us from Adam, right? Right. But they just assume, especially because we're in these beautiful mocha chocolate skins that we just can't possibly have the knowledge that they assume they have from Mm -hmm. a Google search. And so, you know, I have to explain to them when I'm speaking to you, I'm not speaking to you from having spent overnight going down the Google rabbit hole. I'm literally explaining to you after having learned not just cover to cover all those big books, but living it in the moment, living it in the lab, actually investigating that placental interface to see what happens with viruses, what happens with, Mm. you know, information. And so, you know, like yesterday, I saw someone retweet a podcast I'd appeared on in March of 2020 when I was telling them about why vaccines for COVID will be safe and how they will work. And she retweeted yesterday saying, you have to listen to this podcast because Dr. Cindy was spot on. And people are going to be like, oh my God, she's amazing. She was like a prophet, but it wasn't that. I literally used the science and what we know to be true about how viruses work, how pregnancies work, how DNA, RNA, how they all work, and how a baby's, a fetal's, fetus's immune system is supposed to be primed to prepare it for birth, right? And so, but it's because I, I studied this. So you know, you I know there are some people out there who made themselves experts with no experience. Whatsoever. And, and I think that was this, that was a scary thing for me um, because, and, and as like I mentioned it today, like, cause I've, you know, at the, the time we're recording this, um, you know, this basketball player, you know, mm-hmm. hold it, holding social media hostage. Right? And I was like, I was like, why are we listening to a basketball player? Like what is happening here that like a basketball player would command any attention. Right. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to healthcare and, and medicine, but like, Unfortunately, I've I've always talked about how some, especially in the society, we sometimes favor social capital more than intellectual capital. So because they tend to have more social capital, aka celebrity, right? People like gravitate towards that more than the folks who've been putting in the work. But you know, in addition to that, Dr. Pierre, it's also by design, right? If you look at the African-American community, the Black community, for the last 30, 40 years, what have we prioritized in our community as Mm -hmm. signs of success? We said you had to be an athlete or an entertainer for you to be considered influential or successful. So it doesn't surprise me now that the that that those particular segments of our society would be more willing to believe the basketball player when he says he's got concerns about vaccines versus you or me who's also a trusted member of the community but because our career path and our career trajectory wasn't signaled and heralded as equally important equally famous, equally impactful. Yeah, I love it. And so it's by design. So now 
What we see is they don't trust doctors. They don't trust scientists who look like them. But let that actor, singer, or basketball player, because it's primarily basketball or football, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I'm not even sure if a Black baseball player came out and said he didn't want a vaccine that they'd care. <laughs> I'm not even sure. What do you think? You think they'll I, care? I, I, can't, I can't think of... Nope, I cannot think of one. Nope. If a black hockey player said he wasn't going to get vaccinated. Right. <laughs> nope. I can't. It's, it's, yeah, it's, but it's by design. For the last four decades, if you ask who was it, like, you know, we were in school. The, the, the black kid who was doing well in school academically, they weren't really going to get awards, et cetera. It was the, the athlete, right? And we're not jealous of those people. I'm just saying it was by design. So now we're seeing the effect of four decades of only elevating that aspect of career path. Mm. That's all that people respect. Now, do you feel, and I, cause I, some, I sometimes say this about my, my, my MPH, my master's in public mm-hmm. health, that it, it's really helped me become a better physician because it, it really allowed me to look at medicine in a different lens. Do you feel mm-hmm. like the science uh, background that you have like did that as well on the, especially when you start really getting onto the medicine side, do you feel like, like you could see like some positive parts that you were able to gravitate from the science aspect and then apply it to the medicine? Absolutely. I think one, it taught me patience, right? Four and a half years in the lab with one study after the next failing, not getting the anticipated result, you learn patience. You also learn to really problem solve. And so, yeah, it's definitely helped me be able to look at a problem and ask myself, what are all the different ways that can lead me to the answer or at least the foundational reasons for why I'm seeing this problem? So there's that. Um, But it's also taught me humility, right? And I think humility is such a big part of medicine. And I think humility is also what confused some of our colleagues during this pandemic, which is for the first time, many of them were forced, sadly, to say, I don't know. And they weren't comfortable with that. So they started (laughs) running their mouths with all sorts of theories that didn't help, you know, because they weren't comfortable saying, I don't know, this is not my expertise, let's defer to those who are experts. I mean, I certainly found myself watching some people explain virology totally wrong, explain mRNA totally wrong, further confuse, you know. Um, Everybody knows, you know, I've got this big pet peeve, which is this use of the word breakthrough infection. I definitely, I definitely borrow that. I definitely I say, no, nah, there's no such thing as breakthrough. I heard no such thing. thing. And there isn't a single textbook you're going to go into and see the word breakthrough infection in this context. And so, you know, but that was the problem is people not being willing to accept and admit when their expertise in a certain area had been exceeded by the facts. Mm. Uh, (laughs) what I have to ask right and because this happens right and I I talk to my colleagues a lot what I've always felt especially when we talk about this disinformation really especially I don't even want to call it a misinformation age because there's really a lot of disinformation happening is that a lot of my colleagues won't go get up and say like no like that's wrong like mm-hmm. they shy away from social media, they shy mm-hmm. away from educating. But clearly, you know, I read your bio earlier. Clearly, you took it head on. Now, mm-hmm. again, I don't know if you also picked that up from the science background, but 
why is it that you felt like, no, I also need to, you know, turn that Get camera on, hit yeah. live, right? Because you're a blog writer, you do all, like, why did you feel you need to do that extra? Because yeah. you could have been the foremost expert chilling, right? And right. And you still would have been the expert even if me. you never wrote a blog. Yes, that's true. I would tell you it... It's multiple layers. So yes, having been in grad school meant I am comfortable writing. I'm comfortable parsing through data and putting it in a you know concise, communicative form. But that said, most people would argue that people who study basic science, the way we communicate is still different. So that's where medicine comes in because you also learn how to talk to people in ideally, right? We're taught you should be able to talk to your patients at a sixth grade level. And so that also helped. I think growing up in the Caribbean, being an immigrant to the U.S., I also recognize how different communities can actually have disparities in how the mainstream talks to them. Um, I definitely understand the meaning of representation and why it matters and why, you know, someone looking like me needs to get out there and talk as well. Someone like me needs to get out there and let people know, hey, you know, as you remember, early in the pandemic, one of the big pieces of disinformation was this myth that Black people can't get COVID. Oh, yes. Oh, I remember that. And the moment I heard that, I had to jump (laughs) and say, hey, guys, guys, that's not true. And listen, this is all made up, you know. So because immediately there were so many communities who heard that and thought they didn't need to mask. They didn't need to worry. Meanwhile, in reality, Black people were already dying at rates six times other Mm -hmm. populations. But they were hearing this active, targeted misinformation, which is what disinformation is. Misinformation is you're spreading things that you don't know to be alive, mm-hmm. but you're just misinformed. Disinformation is when you know it to be a lie and you still actively spread it. And that's what was happening because the facts had clearly shown that Black people were dying from COVID yep. and dying at higher rates in the U.S. But here was this myth just running wild. Running, and then I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and they were tweeting. It. I'm like, guys, like I'm taking care of patients right now. Like, yeah. what, are, what are y'all talking about? What are y'all doing? And so <laughs> It was all those things that let me know you've got to go live. You know, I saw I had seen a series of posts of people saying, well, COVID isn't in Africa. And I was like, well, that's because many places are shut down right now. It's just a matter of time before it goes there. It's a matter of time before it comes to the Caribbean. So that was part of what made me feel like I had to get out there on top Mm. of what I was already doing. And so what I was already doing was mostly fertility stuff. I think it's fair to say. If you go back and look who was the first visible Black doctor talking about fertility on Instagram, Twitter, it was me. Um, And I did that because I started a practice in 2016 here in Las Vegas. And I came to Las Vegas not having been from here. I don't have ties to the city. And something unique about Las Vegas, two things. Everybody knows Vegas for the casinos and the hospitality industry. But what that really means is ad, the commercial market, is expensive, right? I can't just show up and say I want to buy a commercial on TV. I have to compete with Caesars and Harrods. I don't have that kind of money. So that was part of why I went to social media, because I realized I will need to use social media to meet my target audience, um, (laughs) because I'm not going to get on TV just like that. The second reason that I chose to do that as well is, in so much as Vegas is a big cosmopolitan city, it's still 
groups with holes over different things. And so no one knew me. I don't really have contacts in the community. So there was no one who was going to help get me a, a spot on TV to talk about my clinic or get me on the radio to talk about my clinic, unless I was going to be paying big money to get a paid spot on TV or radio. Didn't have that for a startup clinic. And so that's where social media came in. And that's how we grew this practice. You know, we're a practice making multiples of seven figures per year in revenue. And the vast majority of our marketing is on social media. I not a big budget. It's just me creating. Now I have help. I have a virtual assistant that helps me create my videos and all that. But my first three years, it was all me. It was all me doing the blogs, the videos. Yeah, it was all me. And the reason why, because again, and and like, I wish, especially I know my physician colleagues in the lunchland community who watch this or listen to this. And they still shy away from social media. They still don't understand how social media can better. Even though I be screaming, you know, they see me, I be screaming from the rooftops like, guys, you, you need to get online. Like, please get online. Like, they want you. They're like, mm-hmm. they're Googling questions that you need to be there to answer. Like, because if you are not there to answer, you run the Another risk. Another person with the misinformation is going to give them that answer. And, you know, I, but that's another by design situation, right? If you think back to your time in medical school, all they did was scare us about social yes. media. Yes. We were scared continuously about social media. So I understand why, especially physicians, they're scared to go on social media. So what I say is you apply the same ethics, right? Social media is no different from what you do in your clinic, no different from what you'd say in your clinic. And for me, that's one of the things I kept going, right? I apply the same ethics to my time on social media. Um, I don't chase the numbers. So yes, I have a pretty big following now on most platforms, but it's not because I purchased, nor did I ever feel like I have to compromise my values on these platforms. I just give good information. And if I'm busy, I'm busy. I can't do it today. So I don't strain myself to the yes. point where I'm working burnt out, working tired. Really, like you feel like you have um, to do it. Like, no, I'm doing exactly. it. Yeah. So it, I think that's what scares exactly. some other people. They're like, how do I find the time? I'm not going to have the time. You do it when you can. If you need time off for your vacation, you go on your vacation, you know, um, so that I think that's the, the first thing, but also just to acknowledge that the fear is by design. They spent a lot of time scaring us about social media. They mm-hmm. spent a lot of time, you know, telling us all the bad things about social media. But the truth is, especially if your patient population is under age 60, they're on social media. That's where they're getting their information. That's where they're looking up their doctor. That's where they're deciding if you're the good fit for them. You know, that's where they're deciding if to even come see your specialty far more you. And so, and, and don't worry about Yelp. Yelp is where all the angry people go. Yelp hasn't figured out how healthcare works yet. Because I know Yelp is what scares a lot of people as well. Forget about Yelp. We're talking about all the other parts of social media. I love it. So Dr. Zinn, before we before we get you out of here, like how how can someone connect with you? How can someone follow you? Where are you at? Are you working on anything? Like let, let's let's look at the lunch community. Yes. Like said, I'm I'm very excited. Again, I was very excited. Uh, to get you on because I I don't think people realize just the level of expertise that's just like walking around social media just <laughs> chilling in their excellence 
And so, uh, that's why I like to bring the excellent folks on here so they can see like, hey, like these are the people I follow, guys. Like, mm-hmm. like look, look at this amazingness that's happening over here. Yeah. So, Dr. Barry, I don't know that you know, but I've been following you on LinkedIn long before we met on Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Right. And I knew about Launch and Learn since then. So I think, you know, if people are looking for me, it's easy. I'm at Dr. Cindy M. Duke across social media. He's not wrong. You name the platform, I'm probably there. Um, as you know, I started what I call the My Dynamic Uterus Movement on Clubhouse, which is now the largest reproductive health, fertility, and pregnancy based club there on Clubhouse. It's one oh, of I the top it. 10 health clubs. Yeah. And so every week we cover issues issues as they pertain to reproductive health. And it's a very inclusive club. So it's not just for people who identify as cisgender, female and male, but also those who are transgender, those who are non-binary, and we cover all questions. Um, And so there's that. There are my blogs, which you can come across. I'm also a featured writer for Medium and their um, subsidiary, which is the startup. Um, I'm also a contributor for Thrive Global, which is Ariana Huffington's newest publication. So we do contributions there from time to time and always active on Twitter and um, Instagram and LinkedIn, because I love talking about entrepreneurship and just the journey to where we are. And I mean, honestly, that's probably, I mean, we could probably have a whole episode on itself. Because again, I like, because now like, nothing like warms my heart more when I see like my, my, my physician colleagues, like take that mantle that Mm -hmm. like, yes, yes. I'm, I'm in excellence in what I do in regards to this medicine thing, but like, no, like I understand that this is a business as well. And I'm also excellent Mm -hmm. at that as well too. I just absolutely love that. Yeah. And it's all about learning, you know, learning your niche. I think, you know, there are many people out there who are also scared over the notion of a physician having a side gig, right? Yet we're the only profession at this level that is afraid to use all our talents, right? Because again, by design, we were scared away from the idea of being multifaceted, multi-talented, right? You know, and in my role, I, because of that unique position of being a physician and a scientist, I do get to meet a lot of entrepreneurs and people doing startups or those who've done serial startups and moved on to new things. And that's never something in their mindset, right? They've never felt like they need to be boxed in. They've never felt like they're greedy for doing more than one thing and doing it well. Yes. You know what I mean? And so I think that's something we need to unlearn. Um, I don't mean do so much that you spread yourself thin or you don't do things well, but I think we do need to liberate the mind of those of us who went through training for all those years, learning all those talents, honing all those skills, and suddenly being told you only fit in this box. Small boxes. <laughs> ah, Dr. Cindy, again, thank you for all that you do. Um, thank you for continuing to, to lead you know, not only for physicians like me who see like excellence in, in so many multifaceted fields, but understand that like, yes, I, I can do it too. If I put in yes. the work, I can yes. do it too. So again, I appreciate uh, you joining the Lunch and Learn community, blessing us uh, today. It's been so amazing. Like I said, continue like to just do what you're doing, right? Because it's already that I get not, like, I don't know where you go from here, but clearly the sky is limit for you. 
that I, there's a lot coming. Um, I'm really excited about some projects that are coming up. Um, I have a couple books that I've been sitting on for a long time because that's me, right? I keep working on things and then I, I'll back burner them thinking it's either not the right time or do something else. Um, I even call it planned procrastination. So if you're someone out there and you're like, man, she's doing so much, recognize that a lot of the things I'm doing are things that I started a while back, actually, and finally came back to finishing. Um, but it looks prolific because I had so many things in different stages of progression and completion. Um, but there's that coming and then a few cool things. So my brother, who's an actor, and I, I'm more his silent-ish partner in a production company. And there's some product, mm. some projects coming from that. Um, that will be announced within the next six months or so that I think are going to be super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I encourage people to stay tuned, follow me. I will share. I have some cool speaking engagements coming up. So that's one of the things, Dr. Barry, I'm sure I'm you have experience, right? I'm, 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 again, I'm a cheerleader. So yeah, like, whatever you're doing. I didn't do social media expecting speaking engagements, but now people ask me to come talk to their corporate. Wow, I'm surprised because you... Especially because of the command that you have, I'm like you, like again, it just may come natural for you, but like, it, like yeah, she should, she should be speaking yeah. somewhere. Yeah, but I didn't think of it. I didn't like sign up with a speaker bureau or anything until people approached and said, "Hey, would you like to be a part of this?" And so I think it's also important to let people know that. So some of it will fall in your lap. Some of it, really, you're just doing the thing you love, which is for me, I love breaking things down, communicating, and then people notice that and they would approach you with opportunities. I love it. Again, again, thank you, Dr. Cindy. You're amazing. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you you're too. And any, and any time, you know, anytime, any, any book, any, like, please let us know uh, so we can make sure we, we funnel that information to the Lunch Link community as well. Will do. Will do. Thank you for having me. Thank you for getting to the end of the episode. I am yours truly, Dr. Barry Pierre, favorite board-certified internist. Like always, remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a five-star review, and more importantly, share this to at least two of the five of your friends and family members that you know that could be empowered with the words that you heard today. Again, so appreciative of all you guys' support. See you guys next week.